Good evening. My name is Gina Sharp, and it's a pleasure to see you all here on this very rainy and dark night. But we know what happens after the dark night of the soul, right? It gets into uh, the bright light of the soul in the morning. So we pass through it. Since we're having a holiday of, that is dedicated to our together um, collectively agreeing to remember to be grateful this week, I'd just suggest that perhaps you can do a short reflection before you enter into your meditation just a short contemplation on whatever kindness has come your way in this life <coughs> from your parents to your siblings and all of your relatives your teachers your friends, and perhaps even strangers who have extended <clears throat> kindness. And in that contemplation, bowing deeply to all of that kindness that, it, that has surrounded you in your life. perhaps coupled with an intention to multiply that kindness into the world, to see how our gratitude can become one of activity. that spreads <coughs> kindness over the entire world, as the Buddha says. Just to do a short contemplation on that, and then come back to your inner silence. So before we have our Dharma discussion, it's always lovely to talk about the fact that we're here at the center together. And in so many ways, it's a Dharma center. It's a Buddha Dharma center. And it's a Buddha Dharma Sangha Center. 
there are three refuges for those of you who've done some study of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And we, um, we enter into this sacred place together. Not that any place is not sacred, but this is like an inner sanctum in which we are invited to recall all of the ways in which not only are we grateful to the Buddha for the teachings that he laid down these 2,600 years ago, but that in so many ways the teachings, the Dharma points us to the understanding of our own ability to be awakened, to be awake, to realize the truth of the way things are. So that we are the Buddha sitting here, remembering in this mindfulness practice exactly who we are. And who we are are these very human beings in the midst of human lives trying the very best that we can to work with the mind that we have, the body we have, the heart that we have. And in, and in doing so, to really um, apply these teachings in a way that we recall ourselves as the Buddha himself or herself or the Buddha. And we are here really to recollect together the Dharma, recollect together the basic teachings of the Four Noble Truths that there is difficulty in this life, that things are unsatisfactory. Everywhere we turn, we find unsatisfactoriness. We never seem to be able to quite find that place that's perfect. And we, we are, the pointing to in the Dharma is to really um, see what causes that and how there can be some freedom from the suffering that comes. And we're taught a path, a path of wisdom and ethics and meditation, so that the path is a complete path. It's not just meditation. It's also what the Tibetans call post-meditation, so that whether we're sitting on our cushions or our chair in silence, and trying the best we can to understand this mind, that also there are ways in which we are exhorted to, um, to live a life in accordance with what we learn when we meditate, when we really see clearly what is true, so that the post-meditation, so to speak, is is really part of the whole practice, the whole life that we undertake when we come to listen to these teachings and to undertake a study and practice of them. And then there's the Sangha, the, um, the community of people who are traveling this path together. And in a way, New York Insight is, the place, is a place that's dedicated to really bringing together these, um, if you will, holy community in which we recognize each other as holy companions, what's called in the teachings Kalyanamita, spiritual friends, uh, a way in which we see each other as beings on the path, and we're grateful for each other because in many ways uh, when we start to meditate 
the, uh, the support of companions is incredibly important. I have a couple of um, private students who are unable to come to group um, practice. And for me, it's, it's really been interesting to see what it's like to support people singly with, when they don't have this support of Sangha. So please don't take this for granted. Don't take it for granted that there is a place here, there's a center here, where you can come just about every single day and have other people here who are dedicated to living this life of wisdom, ethics, and contemplation or meditation. Please do not discount the importance of that support. And what it does is it forms a community. And we come together as a community and we break apart as a community too. We go to our separate places. It's not a monastery, so we don't live together. But while we're here, we certainly support each other. So each of you, each of us sitting here, is a great support to every single other person here. So New York Insight is your center. It's not a place where it's not, nobody owns New York Insight because it's a nonprofit organization. And so essentially it's owned by all of the people who support it. That's the ownership. When we support New York Insight either by our presence here and hopefully in addition by your support of it, both material and spiritual, whether you give time as a volunteer like Onika and Kathleen, Kathleen tonight, thank you deeply, or you um, give of your talents, whatever they are, um, for as much time as you can, or you give money uh, so that you support the teachers who all of us come here um, in total faith total um, faith uh, about your faith in your goodwill, your generosity, and your recognition of the goodness that's offered in the offering of the Dharma. So we ask you to support New York Insights in any way you can. Um, Certainly your presence here is a beautiful support and all of the other ways that you are able to give to it. It's an important thing that it's here in the middle of New York City. When we started it, our, our vision was that it would be a quiet refuge in the midst of this very beautiful big city that's bustling and where it's very difficult to find peace and quiet. And so we hoped that from that peace and quiet would come the ability to see, to sit silently and see the workings of your mind and your heart. And in so doing, that it would transform your life. It certainly transformed our lives, all of us who've been involved with it all of these years. And I've certainly seen so many students whose lives have been beautifully transformed. So that's my deep wish for you, that in coming here and in lending your presence, your support, your friendship, that it, you will find that peace and that transformation in your life. So we thank you for the gifts that you give in so many ways. Thank you. And one other thing I forgot to mention is that you can also become a member of New York Insight. That's, a, oh, that's also a beautiful way of supporting New York Insight. And um, I'm a member of New York Insight, and the way I do it is I give a monthly. Um, just It's very easy. I have a monthly amount 
withdrawn from on, on a credit card, and it's wonderful every month. When I see my credit card bill, I'm reminded, and it's a very joyous thing. So I invite you to join me with that. Okay, so um, I'm really happy to entertain whatever questions you have or about practice or about, or any dharma questions that you that you have i have a, a dharma question mm-hmm. on the satipatthana sutta it talks about the four positions of of mindfulness and in the writings it if i if i read it right it talks about uh, knowing the body or knowing standing in standing and sitting in sitting and outside of sitting and what does this meant by knowing the knowing the body inside and in the outside okay if so if i said that right oh, if i might have misquoted it i don't know if i'd say right or wrong i just say i i might reword it a little bit yep, how's please. that uh, the satipatthana sutta in which the buddha gives the instructions for um, for practice, for meditation practice. It's Satipatthana, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And he essentially says there are four ways that we can establish mindfulness through the body, through the um, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, which come with, each one of them comes with um, I'm sorry. These feelings arise, uh, co-arise each time there's contact with uh, of, of a sense door with a sense object. So, this there's a, the object is the sound made by the bell, and that hits the ear. And some of us may think that's pleasant. Some of us may think it's unpleasant. Some of us may find it neutral. So, but but. You can bet that if you really pay attention, you'll notice that there's always a, uh, what's called vedna, or a, a, um, a feeling tone that arises with every single um, contact with the sense door, the, the five senses and the, and the mind. And then he said the third establishment of uh, mindfulness is the mind actually seeing the mind and how it's uh, how what the state of mind is? So he gives us eight different ways that we can, which I won't go into, uh, that we can uh, understand what's happening in the mind. For instance, whether the mind is concentrated or unconcentrated, whether it's great or narrow, um, whether it's distracted or. Um, uh, paying attention, whether it's concentrated or not concentrated, etc. And then there's a fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is essentially all dharmas, so that we can see, just as I was speaking about post-meditation, we can see at all times um, the dharma through, the, through our, our, our experience. So we're looking at experience and understanding the dharma through it. And in the There's what's called a refrain in which he says, he asks us to contemplate these four foundations of mindfulness, and he asks us uh, 12 times to do it. And in those 12 times, the the refrain comes up in the sutta 12 times. And essentially in that refrain, he says, contemplate internally and contemplate externally. And I imagine that that's what you're asking about, is the, how, how do we contemplate the body? And you, you particularly mentioned the postures, right? Um, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down, that there are four postures. Um, how do we contemplate the body internally, and how do we contemplate the body externally? So, of course, I don't know the mind of the Buddha. But there are lots of different uh, scholarly commentaries that talk about what he possibly could have meant by that, especially when we're talking about contemplating the mind, how we contemplate the mind internally and externally. And so I think, first of all, um, to say that 
whatever answer I give you is not definitive, right? Because there are different commentarial opinions about what he meant. But I wonder, um, so that was a very long way of engaging you in a conversation about it. <clears throat> and I wonder if you've considered that yourself and before I tell you what some of the commentary said, what you feel is the Buddha meant by that refrain because he says it so often in the sutta or it, has, it is quoted, that piece is quoted so often in the sutta that for me that means pay attention to that, right? So he says, contemplate internally and each one of the four foundations, he says, contemplate internally, contemplate externally and then he also says, contemplate internally and externally. So what do you think he meant by that? Uh, it's one of those questions I really don't know. I mean, I, I've toyed with it for a while. That's why I wanted to ask you. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be uh, internally, internal feelings. Uh, you know, Let's stick with the body, so just, yeah. just to use the body, because that's... Yeah, throbbings and uh, pressure and so on, and then external could be sounds and colors and things like that. One thought... Uh, that possibly what other people are doing or, or what you observe outside uh, another person meditating is another possibility. Um, and, you know, I could go on, but there's nothing that really clicked inside my heart as what that could be to, to focus that on the practice. And then there's, you know, there's the, the feeling of knowing, you know, knowing mm -hmm. external phenomena and internal. But that's more of a thought and perception. So I really... Wonder. Mm hmm. Hmm. So that's good. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I think that's that's kind of rubbing up to close to the to the words of the sutta. But there's also um, I, I detect a little bit in what you're in your answer to me a, a kind of conceptual way of being with the words. And I wonder if so. What I mean by that is um, when you say. Uh, you know, so contemplating externally, I, I'm kind of looking to see how, you know, somebody else is, or you know, whether it's their uh, how their bodies are externally, or just looking at to see. I'm wondering if we if we look at it as mindfulness, right, which is understanding the mind and recognizing that in um, that in the in the Asian way of looking at the mind that it's mind and heart so it's it's mind that formulates thoughts and heart that formulates emotions if it's not really conceptual and that mindfulness actually as you you kind of said is knowing so there's a knowing if i'm if i'm really paying attention to the body it's not so much my conception of the body. But right now, for instance, if I pay attention to my body, and I invite you to do this while I'm speaking, is to just feel what it feels like for your buttocks to be on the seat. Not through the, not through the instrument of the mind, the, th the, the conceptual mind, the thought mind, but really through the full body. So how does it feel for the buttocks to contact the seat? Anybody, just tell me what you feel. And just shout it out, it's okay. Pressure, Pressure thank you. What else? Grounded. Grounded, thank you. Heat, Heat. lovely, thank you. So relief. Sorry? Relief. Relief, so tell me about that. Okay, so relief, so kind of dropping into the seat. Beautiful, thank you. Anybody feel hardness or softness? Hmm? Hardness. Hardness. So, so just right there, someone felt pressure. That's air element. Somebody felt hardness. That's earth element. Somebody felt warmth. That's fire element. 
water is a little bit harder to um, to get intimate with because there's a kind of cohesion that happens with water or, or a flow and that sometimes is a little bit harder to sense through the physical being that we, we tend to think of that more conceptually but but if we really pay attention we start to feel flow also so so for me that's what the Buddha meant by being mindful of the body we start to feel what happens just in the body by itself and it, you know we're not so used to paying attention in that way we're used to paying attention really through the mind but it was beautiful, and, and someone else said grounded, so that kind of contact with the earth, so that, that earth feeling. So now, if that's true, how, what would you think is um, a way of, so that, is that internal or is that external? Anyone? That contemplation that we just did of just buttocks on seat, is, was that internal or was that external? I hear both. I hear both. So what do you think? So the feeling is from the inside. The mindfulness is internal. Yes, it's what we feel. So we feel pressure, not in an external way, but really from the inside out, right? So it may be what's happening externally. Ah, so now we're going to pay attention to what's actually happening externally. We can actually pay attention to body hitting seat, right? That's external. So if, but now can we kind of pay attention to what's happening external in, in, in the body, externally? Is that possible? So how do you see? Is it if I'm thinking that the chair is supporting me, mm-hmm. I can't experience that. So it. Would oh, be, but you're thinking, yes. Yeah, it, it would be conceptual. Yes. Uh, so it would be a conceptualization. Yes. And uh, the same thing with seeing. I mean, there's just the input of photons and wavelengths. Oh, uh, that's conceptual again. Well, that's true. So do you know the experience of seeing? So when you look at yeah. me, so so look at me. Yes. How is what? What are you seeing? I see. I see colors, shades, shapes. Are you black. really seeing color and shape? I am now. Yeah. Uh huh. What else are you seeing? Texture. Mm hmm. I'm just just thinking about seeing. You're seeing texture. No, can't see it. You can feel it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm seeing patterns in the wall behind you. Okay. And then I'm so seeing, is that I'm an creating... internal or is that external? Well, I know it's an external stimula, but it's, it's internal. I, I couldn't tell so you because, in, again, so, it's, okay. it's all conceptualization. So is, yeah. is that internal and external or is that internal or is that external? Or is it both? It's, I, I, it kind of feels like it, it shifts from one to the other, so it's kind Great. of both. Great. Yeah. So there's your experience. Right? Yeah. You didn't have to think about it. No, no. It's just what's happening. Yeah. So can you pay attention in that way? Can you mm. just pay attention to what the experience is, allowing whatever temptation there is to think about yeah. what's actually happening, whether it's photons or texture or to not think about that, but actually just to know what's that experience like. So when so paying attention so paying attention in that way, is there a feeling that comes up? So you look over here and yeah you may be seeing um, uh, you know color and shape and form and all of that, but you're probably the mind is probably saying that's Gina. I would bet. If, if I'm not specifically just looking to, to 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 take it as an experience, as soon as I drop that, looking and, and of course it's Gina and there's a microphone. You're and overthinking. And, and there's all of that uh, comes. Sure. Okay. So yeah. so there's a there's a there's a play yes between internal and external. Ah, yeah, there is. 
right? Yeah. Yes. But you can pay attention in such a way that you understand what's internal and you understand what's external. Yes. Just by your experience, not by thinking about whether it's photons or this or that, but yeah. just by understanding. So yeah. in that way, there's internal and external experience. And they shift and they be, they're different and, and, they're, and they're both the same. So you're paying attention to my body. You're paying attention to what's happening in your own body. You're paying attention to what kind of feelings come up yeah. when you see this color and shape and form that moves and that the mind recognizes or there's something that conceptualizes it, puts it all together and says, that's Gina. And then, the, you know, depending on how you're feeling about me tonight, right, it might be pleasant or it might be unpleasant or it might be, eh, who cares, right? Yes. Right. So that's how we pay attention, mm. internally, externally, and internally and externally. So it's, it's experiential, it, but it includes what's happening internally in terms of the mind, mm-hmm. even though your object is body. Your object is, uh, you know, what's happening in the, in the, uh, with the eyes, the ears, the nose, the, all of the, the sense doors. And you're also able to pay attention to what's happening in this body. Now, this may all seem very conceptual and maybe a little bit kind of, you know, out there and not really, um, doesn't really address our suffering, right? Which is why, why most of us get to a Dharma hall. Right, as we notice we're suffering, and oh God, got to do something. Oh, the Buddhists know know about suffering. Let me go talk to them. Right. So it's a, in a way, it's a, it's a, it's it's the beginning, right? It's the beginning of really how do how do we understand suffering? We understand suffering by looking at its cause, but we can't understand the internal causes of suffering unless we understand how this works. And we don't understand how this works if we simply stay in the conceptual idea of how it works and we ignore what the actual experience is like, both in the body and in the mind and in the heart. So we break, So the Buddha was brilliant in breaking it down and pointing to how to do that. And really, that's what brought me to this particular tradition. This, that there's a, it, it's so refined in terms of um, being specific about how we pay attention and what we pay attention to, and how that, and by paying attention, we begin to, we begin to get or, or to understand how it all unfolds, how it all happens, what happens. Because what's happening in this life is the experience through these six sense doors. That's all that's going on here. Right? And if we can understand that, and we can understand it in this kind of specific way, because it's so easy for us to jump up into the mind, jump up into the mind. And so the, the part of the brilliance of the Buddha is to first start with this the body, the experience in this body, which we ignore most of the time because we're so involved in the story that the mind is telling us about what's happening in the body. So although it may feel a bit academic or a bit um, too conceptual to speak in this way, it's important for you to understand what what you're doing when you say you're meditating. Right? Because we can sit and meditate and just be for 45 minutes or an hour or however long we sit, be just with the story that the mind is telling us. How many of us have experienced that? Anybody not? All right. And we, we, and we begin to get, so of course we get to the mind also. We get to observing the mind. But if we start with the body, with this kind of concrete, physical being, beingness and experience that is the, that's the beginning of the training to become more and more and more refined by looking then at the feelings and then at the mind and then at all dharmas. So thank you for the question, Cliff. I hope that's helpful. Tremendously. Yeah. Yes. 
I was wondering if you, so I did a, um, a Vipassana course, Vipassana course um, a while ago, um, like a decade ago. And, and With um, who? Uh, it was, uh, it was a, um, um, it was in, God, I'm forgetting the town, it was in Western Massachusetts. It was like a Vipassana oh. uh, retreat. Oh, okay. Um, so it was Goenkaji um, uh -huh. on the videotape. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, so that sort of talks about a very simple progression from starting with breathing meditation to a body scan. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I always hear sort of uh, that that um, is, is sort of a, a personal preference or maybe a school preference um, in terms of when you make that, that switch. So to go from just observing breath um, to observing, like you say, with a, what, what your buttocks feel like against the seat. Um, and I was wondering if you, you had any thoughts on that or a finer point on when to do what or when to, to, to make a transition. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on what you're doing, right? When, when do you do it? Uh, usually when I wake up or when I go to bed. When what? When I wake up or when I go to bed, I no, sit, I mean, and, I sit you, and meditate. Yeah. Sorry. When, so when do you make the transition from simply paying attention to the breath yeah. to paying attention to something else? So I've been focused on just breathing and meta. Um, but when I get like an itch, then I find it's more interesting to focus on the itch rather than my breath because otherwise I'll scratch my itch. When, do you, when you say interesting, what do you mean by that? To, to sort of break down what the itch is composed of. Mm -hmm. So do you think there's an answer there to your question? Well, sh sure, but the, the, the thought of, so, so yes, in that, that if there's, my senses get refined to the point where I'm noticing more and more sensations kind of uh, uh, as they appear. I mean, I could see that, sort of a refined awareness. But um, uh, I guess what I'm asking is, is to, to scan is, is something slightly different, right? That's to say that, that you're sort of checking in on what's going on with some part of the body or all parts of the body in a, in a systematic way, mm -hmm. which seems different. <sighs> So what do you think the point of meditation is? Uh, to to um, be more aware of sensations and emotions and be more aware of the mind. And then, and what was the last thing? Be more aware of the mind. And be more aware of the mind. Okay, so then if we'll take that as, a, as the truth for now. Um, so really your question is, how do you do that, right? Or uh, unless I'm misunderstanding your question. Sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, bang for the buck in terms of time I'm spent meditating. Bang for the buck. Yeah, right. yeah. Listen, we're in a capitalistic society, so we want a bang for the buck. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, the, the practice of... of concentration on the breath is, um, is what the Buddha did, How basically his journey to liberation was what's called anapanasati, right? Uh, mindfulness of the breath. And it, it's a kind of tricky, it's a kind of tricky question and a kind of tricky answer because if I say you can pay attention just to the breath for, for any entire period of meditation, um, if I were a Zen master and you just paid attention to the breath, I'd hit you over the head with my, I forget what they call it. What, what do they call it? The Kasaki. Hmm? Okay. You know, that, the paddle that hits you on the thing. Um, because essentially, even though you may be talking about just paying attention to the breath, um, it, that takes a tremendous amount of discipline and experience to simply sit 
for any long period of time and pay attention to the breath. But what the, what, what the instruction of paying attention to the breath is pointing to is that it's possible to discipline the mind to be present and to take an object such as the breath, which is very convenient and portable, so it's always with us, so we can always meditate. So we take the breath as the object around which we, we wrap the mind. And essentially, over time, the mind, when it's, when it's brought back over and over and over again to an object, it settles down. In the beginning, it's a kind of free-for-all, right? It's just like, it's here, it's, it's on a huge train of associations. It thinks of something, and that's associated with something else, and it thinks about that, and it takes a story about that, and then it takes you somewhere else, and you can start here, and you wind up way over there, and you don't even know how you got there. And then over time, as, as you use the discipline to pay attention over and over and over again to the breath, it begins to settle. That train of associations starts to slow down and the, the mind begins to, to get deeply concentrated. And what begins to happen is in that place of depth and silence, we begin to see a lot more clearly because the mind is not cluttered with this on this train of associations. However, that can, that can be a very narrow way of practice. And although, as I said, that's the Buddha's way of practice, so clearly it, it can be ben very beneficial. But for most of us who are lay people, it's not possible to do that while we're going about our daily life. So the practice of mindfulness is a much wider practice which allows us to keep this concentrated mind while paying attention from moment to moment to what is arising. So we start with one object, such as the breath, and we, we discipline the mind in the beginning to come back over and over and over and over and over again. And in that way, it settles down. And then after a while, we recognize that there are adventitious arisings in the mind and in the body that we can pay attention to without losing concentration. That in fact, the ability to pay attention to what is here now can keep the mind just as concentrated as staying on one object. But it takes skill. And we start with one object because at first the mind doesn't know how to do it. So we use that one object to, to, um, to discipline the mind. But after a while, we start to pay attention to what becomes prominent in our experience. So right now there's a sound, okay? So I can pay attention to that and not lose my ability to be present right now with what's happening. So I can pay attention to that sound. Notice it arose. Notice it was here for a short while and then it disappeared but the mind can stay steady and focused on this moment. So it came back, it came back right here because it has some, a, a small amount of discipline, let's say, right? So, so your, your chosen object can be something such as the breath or it can be the moment-to-moment -moment experience of arising and passing away. So the itch arises, you pay attention to it, it passes away, nothing else is predominant in your experience, and you return to the breath because you allow the mind to have 
an object around which it wraps to stay present. And then, some, and then a thought arises. We can pay attention to that thought, watch it come, watch it stay for a while, and watch it pass away without becoming enthralled by it one way or another, either by being so in love with this thought that we just get carried away with it, or we hate it and we want to push it away, or um, we just let it carry us away on that train of associations. We can actually um, clearly watch the arising of a thought just as we listen to that sound arise and pass away. We can see a thought arise and pass away and still be right here in this moment, not be carried away. Similarly, if you want to do a body scan, right, it's the same principle. So all of the, so mindfulness is the ability to be present for what is happening right now, whether it's the breath, the in-breath arising and passing away, and then the out-breath arising and passing away, and then the in-breath arising and passing away, or a thought arising and passing away, or an itch arising and passing away, or a sound arising and passing away, or a sensation in the body that's pleasant arising and passing away, or unpleasant that's arising and passing away. All of that is training us to be present in a, and the um, addition to that, or the amplification of that, is that we are being present for our experience and at the same time training ourselves in equanimity so that what's pleasant is arising and we're not attached, we're letting it go. What is unpleasant is arising and we're not um, aversive and pushing it away, simply seeing it just like we did what was pleasant. So, uh, so our, our ability to be present is not dependent solely on one object, but the ability to be here without being carried away one way or another, or, or, and without ignoring what is neutral. So that eventually our practice becomes discretionary. What, what do we need? We begin to know what we need. Do we need to be simply with one object right now because the mind is a little crazy and it's, you know, what, however we're being carried away. So we stay with just the breath. Or is the, can the mind be more open to what is happening? Because when we see what's happening and we're able to be with it without um, reactivity and with some equanimity, then what begins to happen is insight, the insight that we were talking about before, that the Buddha asked us to watch what's happening or to know what's happening, better word than watch, to know what's happening so that we would have insight to the impermanence of all things. We see things come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go, inexorably. To understand how that impermanence teaches us that there is nothing with an enduring self. And I know I'm going to get into trouble now when I start introducing that, right? But that's okay. And that, uh, and that this, this impermanence also is, is, uh, is, is stressful for us because we want to hold on. We want to hold on to things as we know them to be. And yet they're constantly changing. And somehow the mind puts together that things are permanent. And yet, when we really see clearly, we're beginning to understand the impermanence of all, all phenomena. Right? Nothing, nothing stays the same. Everything changes. So that we can see that through the breath, or we can see that through the moment-to-moment adventitious arising and passing away of phenomena. And, it, and you begin to know your practice well enough to know what is appropriate in, that, in each moment, what, is, what, what can work well for that insight. 
Thanks. You're welcome. Um, and I, my question is more general, I think, than the other um, questions so far. But I, so I've been coming here um, for maybe six months or so, and I came initially. You know, I'd heard a lot about the, med the benefits of meditation, but hadn't been particularly interested in um, in the Dharma or in Buddhism. And it's something that, um, as a result of staying for these Dharma talks, um, I've become much more interested in. And I think before um, I had this idea, which is, I think, a common preconception about Buddhism, that it encourages a kind of passivity, right? That being okay <laughs> with what is, um, that being okay with what arises, um, the emphasis on accepting things as they are, that this is about um, being passive, it's about not trying to make things better. Um, and so um, I know obviously that's not the case, um, but I guess my question is sort of just an invitation um, to speak more about how one can have a more skillful relationship to striving, let's say, because whether, whether it's in your personal life, um, if you're you know, applying for a job that you really want or something else, um, or in the wider sense in that you want to, you know, because of ethical principles or morals, you want to affect some kind of change in the world, how, how that coexists with the, um, with the uh, desire to, or with being able to be okay with things as they are. Mm. So Buddhism has always had that bad rap, right? <laughs> but in fact, I just got a letter tonight from someone who's a prisoner in Missouri. that kind of speaks to this, half speaks to it. He, it's a young man, I, I don't know how old he is now, but he said he was, he's been in prison since he was a 16 year old child for robbery. And he's interested in the teachings of the Buddha and he said he's become, he's interested in the teachings of the Buddha because um, of someone else who's in prison with him who is a Buddhist. And he said, um, I've become friends with another inmate who is a Buddhist. In that time we've been conversing and hanging out, I've noticed and witnessed something so incredibly amazing to see in, a pris pr in prison in an environment which is all too often hostile, chaotic, and plagued by the sufferings of its, its inhabitants. He's very articulate. Who in turn almost always erupt in violence at every turn. What is amazing about my Buddhist friend in relation to the said prison environment is that amongst all of the pitfalls of prison life, my friend remains calm. He has such a sense of peace about him that even with four life sentences, he doesn't have a worry in the world and seems to be blessed with a gift that enables him to be free even in prison. My friend told me it's the actual, actualizing of the Buddhist path which has helped him discover peace even in times of stress. I want to share his experience in my situation, so I'm interested, blah, 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 in learning about Buddhism. So, you know, do we want peace or do we want to fight with the world, right? And it's, it's right there that I think Buddhism gets a bad rap because the peace is the beginning. So if we can learn just the simple practice of being equanimous with an itch, right? That is the, that equanimity that is learned in that moment is the same principle of the equanimity of this person who is in for four life sentences, who is, who is managing to be peaceful and equanimous. And isn't that how we want to be in the world, right? So 
we, we tend to think of ourselves as human doings rather than human beings, right? What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? What am I going to do with this situation? What am I going to do with this injustice? What am I going to do with... How am I going to solve this problem? And we in doing and, and again, that's a way of floating up into the mind and not staying grounded, as John said when we were talking about what just feeling what it feels like to have the buttocks contact the chair. What a simple practice, and yet somebody feels grounded just doing that, right? So we learn how to be equanimous with an itch or with a mosquito trying to get a meal from our cheek, right? And, but that's the beginning. Once we learn how to do that, then to learn how to be calm in the midst of the most terrible injustice, to be calm in the midst of the most terrible storm, to be calm when you're being insulted or uh, when uh, you're not being treated fairly or, um, or there is some way in which something is happening that, sh- that we feel shouldn't be happening. We start from that place of peace. We start from that place of, okay, let's accept the situation just as it is because that's how it is, right? Before we act, that's how the situation is. So to rail and say it shouldn't be this way and they shouldn't be doing that, and blah, 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 blah. Who's, who's upset? Not the people who are you know, um, doing the injustice or that are harming you, but you yourself. So it's, it's as if you take a, you know, the, an arrow comes into you and because of how you're dealing with, in, instead of simply um, accepting, oh, that's what's happened, now I have to do something. You're, who did that? I'm gonna, and by the time you, you, you know, you finish railing about it, the poison on the arrow has or has sunk right into your being. So we start out by really understanding our situation. And what's our situation? We're in this human body and this human life that you know is really difficult. Anybody have an easy life here? <laughs> Right? Nobody has an easy life. We're born into these bodies that age and get sick and die. What could be worse? Right? We want to stay healthy, young, and live. Right? And what do we get? Sick, aging, dying. Right? That's what we get. So, so are we going to spend our whole lives like railing against that? Or are we going to get on with it? but get on with it from a place of, oh, you know, the, the recollections. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to get ill. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death, right? So, so that's, that's our starting point. And then, from that place, we can think clearly because we're not so riled up by the injustice of aging, sickness, and death. We're like, okay, that's, that's, this is how it is. So if we can accept that, then there's a whole hell of a lot more that we can accept, right? Because that stuff is like, that ain't going to change. Maybe that's the one thing that is permanent, is <laughs> sickness, aging, and death or the three things. So, so we start from that place. And from that place, there's a clarity that comes. And when that clarity comes, because we're not in reactivity, we can respond. And how do we respond? We respond appropriately when we're not in reactivity. When we're in reactivity, it's totally unpredictable how we're going to respond. Totally unpredictable. We have, we have no control over ourselves when we're in reactivity. 
Anybody not agree with that? When you're in reactivity, are you in control of yourself? You're not. So that's what the Buddha teaches, right? And he was the master. He was the master of, uh, of righting wrongs. In that whole caste system that he was living in at the time in India 2,600 years ago, he had people from every caste in his monastery. Unheard of. Everybody mixing together. Nobody was the boss. Right? He, he took women and had to be asked three times. We won't discuss that, but, you know, he finally did, right? So, and, and in those days, women were chattel. Right? They belonged to their father and then to their husband and then to their sons. So, so he wasn't just sitting back saying, well, that's the way it is. I just made him Jewish. <laughs> that's the way it is. Right? right? He wasn't saying that. Right? He was saying, let's, like, let's, you know, let's get on with understanding that um, you know, we're all capable of be becoming the best possible human beings that we can be. And I'm willing to take anybody who is willing to undergo this training to do that. So if you're an activist, the best thing in the world you can do is meditate because you're constantly involved in a world in, that is so difficult where you're really going totally against the stream and understanding rights that need to, wrongs that need to be righted. That's very stressful. So what's the best thing you could possibly do for yourself? Is to do whatever it takes so that this organism, this mind-body process, is not put under any more stress than it needs to have. And the reactivity that we can have from this is wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, it's all wrong. Yes, you're absolutely 100% probably right about the wrongs that need to be righted. But how do you approach them? How do you see them? And how do you, and how do you live with the fact that everything is unsatisfactory and therefore your work is never going to be perfect? It's never, ever, ever going to be perfect. You may get this victory and that victory and this may change and that may change but no matter what you do it's like one of those trick glasses where you keep drinking and it never goes down right when you're an activist right so how do you keep some balance in all of that that's what the that's what the practice is for it's it's not about laying down and becoming some inert protoplasm that just accepts things however they are, right? It's really becoming incredibly discerning about what action needs to be taken and what is most likely to be of benefit and to be able to discern what will not be of benefit and what will be of benefit, right? And that's what having a mind that's clear and that understands impermanence and uh, unsatisfactoriness and not self, when we truly penetrate that understanding, wisdom comes and we're able to know what to tackle, what to leave alone for now, and when to be satisfied with some gains and to understand how it works, that you get a gain and then you get some losses, and then you get another gain, and you get some losses. And can you be even and equal in how you live with the gains and the losses? Because they're going to always be there. It's just how it is. If you look back for the millions of years or the thousands of years of recorded history, when you look at human history, it ain't pretty, right? So to think that we're going to make a utopia is probably not that realistic. Maybe, you know, but probably odds are 
we're not going to make a utopia. So what's good enough? What's good enough? And that will be a lot less wearing on your uh, system. Does that help? Yeah, it helps a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. So we've reached the end of our evening. And thank you for those beautiful questions. And I hope that um, your Thanksgiving holiday uh, inspires you to see the beauty in our world, to appreciate all of the goodness that has come your way through human agency and your benefactors, your parents especially, who gave you life, however the relationship is. The Buddha said that we can't, we will never be able to repay our parents, even if we walked with them on our heads for the rest of our lives. So to have some gratitude for being given this imperfect life, which is actually perfect. And to remember all of the beings who have shown you kindness in your lifetime and resolve to share that kindness and that goodness with every being with whom you come into contact. There is nothing else in this world as important as the kindness that we can share with each other. So by practicing tonight and uh, creating this field of goodness that we've created by our Dharma discussion and our meditation practice, we can share all of this goodness with all the world. And so we dedicate our practice, the benefit of our practice, to the benefit of all beings. We don't keep it for ourselves, but we send it out to all beings everywhere without exception, wishing that all beings be safe from harm, be happy and peaceful, be healthy and strong, and live with ease. And I bow deeply to your practice with great gratitude on my part. Thank you so much. Have a really great week and a good Thanksgiving and be safe. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.